Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. My pleasure to welcome you to this special podcast. We're on scene at the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine Scientific Retreat, and the program we're about to listen to is a recording of the panel discussion on hope versus hype of stem cell therapy. Panelists are Dr. Peter Rubin, Dr. Lawrence Wechsler, and Carl Kurlander. Panel moderator is Bill Flanagan, and the panel organizer is Dr. Brian Brown. So sit back, enjoy, and listen to this recording, and we welcome your comments and feedback. Thank you. In order to discuss this topic, we've put together a panel of experts in the area of stem cell therapy, as well as scientific communication. We have Dr. Peter Rubin, who's the chair of the Department of Plastic Surgery, Dr. Lawrence Wexler, who's the chair of the Department of Neurology, both of whom are not only physicians and surgeons, but stem cell researchers who are actively participating in clinical trials of stem cell therapies. We also have Carl Kurlander, who's a documentarian and filmmaker. He's a producer of a documentary called Burden of Genius about the life and achievements of Dr. Starzl, Tom Starzl. And we have a moderator for our panel today, Bill Flanagan, who's Chief Corporate Relations Officer for the Allegheny Conference. And Bill is an experienced broadcast journalist as well as um, the host of Our Region's Business on WPXI-TV. Just as a very quick note, After the presentation, we're going to have a quick award ceremony for our trainees um, who have posters downstairs, and everybody who's in attendance today is welcome to stay for a reception afterwards uh, downstairs. We have a lot of posters which show science beyond stem cell therapies of the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine. You're welcome to stay, talk with our trainees and our our faculty about what's going on here at the McGowan Institute. So with that, I would like to uh, bring Bill up to the podium, and he's going to take over. Thank you very much. Great to be here uh, with all of you this afternoon. I'd like to thank uh, the uh, Pitt-McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine for organizing this particular forum and for opening the doors uh, to all of this. For those of us who are not experts in the field of of stem cell therapy and stem cell research or medicine in general and and allowing the public at large to, to get a glimpse at what's happening and what's hope and what's hype. It's especially meaningful for me because I actually had the chance to meet Bill McGowan. Uh, about 30 years ago, uh, when he and his wife Sue came here to Pitt with a million-dollar check uh, to fund the creation of a center for uh, artificial organ replacement, which was the initial gift that started the chain of events that eventually led to the formation of the McGowan Institute and made it possible for all of us to be here today. I had an interview with him on my television show, uh, Our Region's Business, uh, at that time on KDKA, and, and got a chance to meet him and find out a little bit more about the debt that he felt he owed the University of Pittsburgh and Tom Starzl and the researchers here uh, for the heart transplant that saved his life and really gave him a, an additional number of years to continue his work as chairman of MCI, the company that opened up the whole world of telecommunications in a, from the time when Ma Bell dominated everything. So I feel like I've been following this story for a very long time and it's great now to have the opportunity to uh, join with our panelists today and, and really talk about uh, being on the frontier again of what's happening in medicine, of the future that's unfolding all around us and uh, obviously the focus of, of this conference here today. Of course, Pittsburgh, our, our community has been at such a crossroads of hope versus hype before. 
about two generations ago, not very far from here, a young man named Jonas Salk pioneered the polio vaccine. And uh, many Pittsburghers literally rolled up their sleeves to take a chance on this young doctor and his team at Pitt uh, to determine whether or not they really could conquer, uh, conquer the scourge of polio. And then a generation ago, it was Dr. Starzl, Tom Starzl, who came to Pittsburgh and, and puzzled out the challenges in successfully transplanting organs and countering uh, rejection, all the work uh, that laid the groundwork uh, for our region's expertise in regenerative medicine today. Well, today, uh, patients are being confronted with a new set of choices. Uh, today, around the promise of stem cell research and stem cell therapy, much of it pioneered here in our region as well. Uh, but even as this science uh, is evolving, and much as was the case back then, it's already being sold to the public, uh, which has to sort out for itself, for ourselves, uh, what's, what's hope and what's hype in this space. So here's the plan for today's panel. That's what we're here to talk about. Each of our panelists will set the scene uh, with a few minutes of presentation, kind of their take on the subject, what's going on, where things stand, uh, their, their perspective about it. We'll spend just a few minutes talking amongst ourselves about some of the ideas they've put on the table. And then as soon as possible, I want to open it up to all of you and kind of get your thoughts, questions, comments, concerns uh, for our panelists uh, to react to. So we will definitely have this program over by five so we can get to the awards and the reception. Uh, but I'd like to begin uh, with a bit of historical context that demonstrates the critical role that universities can play in making sure that the public understands what's fact and uh, what's fiction when it comes to research on the cutting edge of medicine. And with that, we'll begin with documentarian and filmmaker Carl Kurlander of the University of Pittsburgh. Carl. Thank you so much. And uh, it's, I actually moved back here. I grew up here, but I moved back here from Hollywood, where I worked for 20 years in film and television. And, and when I came back here, they were doing the 50th anniversary of the Salk vaccine. And I said, Aren't, isn't someone going to film this? Wasn't it kind of historic? And amazingly, we made a movie about what that took to actually take what was literally, as you know, the most feared disease of the 20th century. And in six years, Pittsburgh went from an experimental vaccine to a vaccine that was tested on 1.8 million school children and eventually really ridded the country of the disease in short order. But, you know, while I was making that, you could see how controversial it was. There was all these cures for polio, everything from, you know, FDR went to Warm Springs, and if you went to certain baths, you'd be cured, and Sister Kenny had her therapy. Uh, Julius Youngner, who was a key researcher, said his mother said, if you wore garlic around your neck, you wouldn't get polio. And, you know, it's hard to understand fact from fiction, and when I uh, started to make that movie, I... Um, I also stumbled upon, uh, actually through uh, one of the panelists' father, Larry Wexford, worked with Dr. Starzl, and uh, another incredible story. But again, these things don't just happen overnight, and I think the university can play a huge role, must play a huge role, in order to vet for the public what is, goes beyond experimental and when it becomes therapeutic. Uh, I did a, we did a movie about Dr. Starzl, thank God we talked to him a few years ago before he passed, and it's now going around the country. It'll be at the Science Center April uh, 12th through the 18th. But I wanted to show you a quick trailer to show you how this wasn't easy and how, to this day, it's still hard to decide what is hype and what is hope. So, uh, Brian, are you around to make sure this computer works? Because I know he has it on here, but hopefully you'll make it work. So, technology never works. We show the, well, let's see. Okay, go there you go. Hopefully it'll work. It worked in dress rehearsal, I assure you. See if he can fix it. Oh, yeah. I 
Is the thing not plugged in the sound thing? By the way, we showed the polio movie at the, to Bill Gates at the, at the Gates Foundation, and I'm happy to tell you, even there we had technical problems. So I, <laughs> I never trust technology when they say, oh, yeah, we're this work, the notion of transplantation was science fiction. It's Iron Man stuff, where he says, I'm going to take a part out of somebody's body and stick it in another person's. I've always found that the best way to get a job done is to get the job done before anyone realizes what you're up to. I think the space between heroic endeavor and being an outcast is, is not all that great. Tom is a Nietzschean Superman. He's able to steel himself against his human emotions better than the vast majority of us. He said, do you know why I succeeded? I said, no, I don't. He said, because I ignored the bullets. The whole idea that you can bring them back from the brink of death and they wake up and now they're whole. Not so long ago, it might have been called a miracle. There was a remarkable surgical operation. Dr. Thomas Starzl developed a multi-organ transplant technique. Starzl felt okay, these people become junkies or drunks, but it doesn't mean that they should get an automatic death sentence. Every time I leave the hospital, I could not be more thankful that I'm walking out that door. I was expecting to die because they weren't transplanting HIV-positive people. Dr. Starzl saved my life. We cannot leave medicine out of our understanding of history. Because the world changes with these developments. And then you realize that there are hundreds of thousands of people with transplanted organs living their lives today. You can think of a successful transplantation as preservation of memories. Not only of that person, but of everybody they know and especially those who love them dearly. Um, so with that movie, it, when you, I hope you'll come see the whole movie. Uh, what we leave out is, uh, what you can see in the movie is, he did his first uh, attempted liver transplant. It had never been done successfully in the world in 1963 in Denver. And four people ended up dying on the table. In 1967, he did the world's first successful liver transplant. But he didn't come to Pittsburgh till 1981. And when he did, he was greeted with at least 50 physicians signing a petition saying that they should stop this experimental liver transplant. It'll never work. It's not worth the price. And there was a huge price that was paid. But of course, the University of Pittsburgh stood by him, and they, they went through many, many periods of experimentation until what was experimental became therapeutic. And as I, there's far better people on this panel who will discuss, you've got the same situation with stem cells. Uh, in full disclosure, Larry Wexler happens to also, on top of being the head of neurology, my stepbrother, and I know a few years ago, uh, there was a big Washington Post headline on what he had done and the breakthrough he had made with stem cell. And I said to Larry, what was that, five years ago, ten years ago? At least ten. At least, it's like 15 years ago. I mean, this science takes time, and there's always a balance and a rush, particularly with people who are in 
desperate need, which obviously people were with liver transplants, but with stem cells, there's great promise. But as you're about to hear today, there's also great difficulty in sorting through science and fact from fiction. And I'm going to uh, turn it back to Bill, but before I do, you know, I thought, oh, these things go away, but they're very cyclical. And just last night I was watching the NBC News, and of course, there's a giant thing about vaccines. And if you Google vaccines, you will see all the things when that we did to progress with polio. Of course, if you Google it now, it's polio, the vaccine causes cancer, all these things that are not scientifically, and, and autism, believe me, they are scientifically refuted, but it's very hard this day and age to get good scientific information. So I hope today's panel and this university can play a huge role in getting that out there. So thank you so much. Thank you, Carl. And yeah, a little later on, I do want to come back and get some of your thoughts for especially the scientists in the room, but for all of us, how in a world of alternative facts and supposed fake news, we, we can make sense of things. And how do we find out the truth? And how, do, how can we understand the facts? So we'll come back to that a little later on. But before then, I, I'd like to get a little bit of a, a sense today to set the scene a little more about what truly is fact and fiction when it comes to stem cell research and, and therapy. And to take that on to sort of set the scene for a few minutes, please welcome Dr. Peter Rubin the chair of the Department of Plastic Surgery here at Pitt. Uh, it is uh, a great pleasure to be here with you for this panel on stem cells, uh, hope versus hype. And what a, a wonderful introduction to see the, the legacy of Dr. Starzl and the great innovation coming out of the University of Pittsburgh and how that's changed so many lives. And you think, well, now why is a plastic surgeon up here talking to you? And, uh, you know, pl most people think about plastic surgery as uh, sort of the Hollywood image, and nothing could be further from the truth. It's one of the most innovative specialties uh, in uh, all of medicine. And to highlight that, uh, Prior to Dr. Starzl doing his work, the very first organ transplant, successful human organ transplant, was done by a plastic surgeon, Dr. Joseph Murray, in Boston in 1954. And he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1990. So my focus has really been on innovation in cell therapy, tissue engineering, and, and regenerative medicine. And I want to help set the stage a little bit about you know, fact versus fiction, uh, as is customary, we always like to show our disclosures so, so you know if there's any conflict of interest. There's nothing I'm going to talk about today uh, where I have a, a financial conflict of interest. So first question for the audience, show of hands, who, who recognizes these faces on this screen? Just a, just a couple of people. This is a couple of scientists in the room. So this is uh, Shinya Yamanaka and John Gurdon. Uh, these guys won the Nobel Prize in 2012 for their work in stem cell biology. They showed that you could take otherwise bland cells, reprogram them genetically to behave like stem cells and become pluripotent. All right, show of hands. Who recognizes these people on the screen? A lot of hands. Lots of hands going up. A lot of hands going up. And you have just identified a major problem in stem cells and stem cell advertising and fact versus fiction. So these guys have groupies. And 
we like to hang out in laboratories, we get excited about statistics and uh, when graphs look really good and when our hypothesis is proven. These guys reach us through peer-reviewed journals like Science and Nature. And that's how they get to us. But not that many of us read those journals, unless you're a scientist. These guys reach you through every other channel of communication in your world. And we'll come back to that a little bit later about why that's an issue. So let's talk about stem cells. So there are three general types of stem cells. There's embryonic stem cells that are derived from, from embryos. These obviously have a lot of ethical issues. Uh, they can recreate an entire human organism. There are induced uh, pluripotent cells. This is a form of gene therapy. That's what Gurdon and Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize for. And then there are, are adult stem cells. So for all of us in this room, all of our tissues have stem cells in them. And these are sort of a reservoir of cells that help to regenerate our organs naturally over time. They help with wound healing. And they occur in every tissue. What are some common sources? Well, there's bone marrow that's been used for decades, blood, uh, placental tissue. We see that very commonly, umbilical cord tissue. These are some of the areas. And my favorite, uh, which is fat. And our lab has been focused on this uh, for a really long time now, almost 20 years. Uh, federally funded lab, fantastic team of people in our adipose stem center. I want to recognize Dr. Casey Mara, uh, who we, we founded this lab together. Uh, Dr. Lauren Kokai, uh, who's co-director of the lab with me now. And this has been a great focus. Now, no one likes fat. We're always trying to get rid of it. This is Pittsburgh fat, but these are the stem cells that live within fat. They come in a very, very high concentration, so there's really a hidden benefit. And this whole, whole field of adipose stem cell biology has really come out of, uh, a lot out of Pittsburgh and has grown over about the last uh, 15, 17 years. Uh, Dr. Bill Futrell, who's in the room, uh, was a great pioneer of this uh, in our plastic surgery unit. And these are the number of papers that have been published uh, over time uh, in that field of adipose stem cell biology. And this has become such a real important field that uh, I'm proud to be a, a co-founder of this nonprofit scientific society, the International Federation for Adipose Therapeutics and Science. We're actually having our 17th annual meeting on adipose stem cells, and we have scientists from all around the world attend this meeting. So why? Why are these adult mesenchymal stem cells attractive therapeutically? Well, a few reasons. One is they can convert, they can transform into other tissue types. We call that plasticity. And they can be induced to become bone, uh, muscle, even blood cells, all different tissue types. Another reason is that they, they're like little chemical factories. They release growth factors. They can assist with the healing process. We put them in the site of injury, and their natural tendency is to release uh, healing potent growth factors. In this graph, the bars, the high bars are, are good. Those are release of growth factors from these cells. And then there's a third very important reason, and that these cells are actually have anti-inflammatory effects. And this, in this graph, it's actually the opposite. The lower bars that you see represent anti-inflammatory effects 
in this study. And fat has, uh, stem cells have very potent anti-inflammatory effects. Uh, we've been very privileged to be applying our work uh, to the benefit of our wounded warriors through Department of Defense research. And we've taken work from, from the bench up through the bedside under very important funding programs like the Armed Forces Institute of Regenerative Medicine. And we have been trying to help patients recover from devastating limb injuries. There are over 1,500 military um, patients with amputee, amputations from recent conflicts. And a lot of them have pain syndromes. They have difficulty fitting prosthetics. And this is uh, one of our patients, an example of one of our patients, a special operator who actually bilateral amputee uh, who was injured by an IED blast in Afghanistan. And he has a, a breakdown of the tissue, poor padding around the, the end of his amputation. He has pain syndromes in that area, can't wear a prosthesis for a very long time. So we enrolled him in an FDA-sanctioned trial, government-funded study, where we added his own fat tissue and stem cells to try and relieve the pain syndrome. And in this study, uh, again, which is a very regulated study, uh, we showed very significant positive effects of this therapy. And these are the kind of research projects that are helping to move the field forward. So what's the problem? The problem is that if you're not a scientist, that this is how the information reaches you. On the cover of Time magazine, through the internet, through social media, through the news, through the newspaper, through advertisements, it's captivating. It preys on your hopes. Who doesn't want to get rid of their arthritis? Who doesn't want to get better from whatever disease we have? The cells are very easy to obtain, so the therapies can be administered in a lot of different settings. You don't have to go to a specialized center. You don't need the Starzl Transplant Institute. So what we don't want to have happen is for stem cells to become the snake oil of our modern era. But yet we see signs of that. This is a real website. I've covered up the names of the clinic and the contact numbers. But you look at, look at the advertising experience you can trust. And here's a hallmark of these clinics. See that little patient testimonial video there. And that's really very important to note. But when you see a list of diseases that can be treated, it's hard to read on this, but there's a, a really long list of diseases that are very disparate. They're not related from Lyme disease to urologic conditions, orthopedic conditions. Some of these claim to treat baldness. Uh, you know, this is, almost seems good to, too good to be true. And that's what you see, characteristics of some of these uh, clinics that you often have a specialist who's not in the field that's relevant to your disease process treating your disorder. Patient testimonials are touted. We call that anecdotal evidence. Uh, yes, you do pay out of pocket. Are you surprised? And these clinics are often not regulated. So my message is that there's really wonderful, credible science going on in the field of stem cell biology, but it takes a while to develop that and develop it safely and with efficacy. And we have to make this field credible through good science and ethical practice, or it will quickly become uh, incredible. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, your points about fat and baldness caught my ear. Uh, Eddie, you, you need to talk to my PMP a, a little about <laughs> some of this stuff, but help me a lot. Uh, thank you. I mean, really, really fascinating stuff and, and, and important as well. Uh, so we've set the scene a little bit thanks to Dr. Rubin. What, what actually is possible today? Where are some breakthroughs really happening where we're seeing clinical uh, benefit from the use of stem, cell, uh, stem cells? Dr. Rubin talked about the amputee. Dr. Larry Wexler, who is the chair of the Department of Neurology, uh, Neurology here at the School of Medicine has been leading the PIT portion of a clinical trial investigating stem cell treatment for chronic stroke patients. So he's here to tell us how that's going. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for inviting me to be part of this panel. Uh, I'm honored to be uh, on the dais with uh, this distinguished group. Um, I'm going very low tech today. I have no slides and I have no movies. Uh, but uh, um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about stroke and stem cells uh, uh, for stroke. Um, as many of you know who uh, have uh, friends or family members or personal experience with stroke, uh, it's a big problem. Um, there are about 800,000 strokes in this country every year, and about 40% of them result in significant disability uh, um, as a result of the stroke uh, uh, of one kind or another. Um, in fact, uh, stroke is the leading cause of adult disability in the United States, and of course worldwide it's even a, a bigger problem. Uh, I've, uh, I'm a neurologist, and I've been uh, in the stroke field taking care of stroke patients for over 30 years, and we've made great advances. Um, we uh, uh, now know a lot about how to prevent strokes, uh, and we even now can intervene in the midst of a stroke and reverse the effects of a stroke, which is really quite amazing. Um, but if we are unsuccessful in preventing it and we don't get you in time and, and can't reverse it and you are left with some deficit from stroke, uh, that is an area where we have very little to offer, unfortunately. It's really an unmet need. Uh, um, how we can enhance the recovery from stroke months or years out uh, after a uh, disability is fixed uh, following a stroke. And stem cells offer the hope, and that's the hope part of this, uh, that in fact we can alter the course of uh, disability after stroke and make people better, again, even months or years uh, after the stroke has occurred. This would be a great advance if we could do so. Uh, many, many people would benefit from it. Um, but there's a process. There's a process for establishing uh, whether a treatment like this can actually do what we want it to do. We have to find the right cells. We have to give them to the right patients. We have to give them uh, at the right time and in the right way uh, in order to make them better. Uh, we were talking about first in Pittsburgh, uh, um, Tom Starzl, Jonas Salk. Uh, um, this is much less significant, but in fact, another first in Pittsburgh was the first human trial of stem cell therapy for stroke. Uh, and that's what Carl was mentioning from the uh, uh, press uh, uh, years ago. Uh, this actually goes back to the year 2000 uh, when we did the first trials of injecting cells into the brain of people with stroke to try to uh, uh, improve uh, recovery. And in fact, we were able to show that this was a safe treatment uh, and that at least there was some hint uh, that patients were getting better with uh, with this kind of treatment. Since then, uh, these studies have progressed to the point that we are now doing uh, randomized, controlled, blinded trials of uh, cell therapy for stroke. Uh, they are not complete yet, but if they show benefit, uh, these treatments could become uh, FDA approved for stroke patients. Um, but it's important to understand how we got here. 
Uh, and how we got here was going through a process of taking a cell type and testing it first in preclinical studies in animal models of stroke and showing that it is of benefit uh, in that setting. Uh, because if it's not, there's no point in going forward. But if it is, then you go to early phase studies in humans, and that was what we did back in 2000 to show that there's adequate safety and at least some indication of benefit. And then you go on to further studies with larger groups of patients uh, and appropriate controls and blinding to show that a, a treatment is effective. And without that, we really don't have any way of knowing whether or not a treatment is really, really effective. Um, Myself as a clinician, when I prescribe a treatment to a patient, uh, I want to know what the risks are, and I want to know what the benefits of that treatment might be. Uh, and if, uh, if for any treatment, uh, if the benefits are unknown or very minimal and the risks are great, then I'm not going to recommend that treatment. And without these kinds of studies, there's no way for us to know what the equation is. We, we, if we have uncertain benefit and we know there are risks, that's not something that we would normally recommend. Uh, and so it's important to, uh, to sort that out. Um, so what we need to know is, are many things about cell therapy. We need to know what the best cell type is. We need to know how many cells to give. We need to know where to give it. We need to know when to give it. Uh, and we need to know what are the best patients uh, to receive this that are most likely uh, to benefit. So here we are on the verge of this new treatment for stroke. We're very close. Uh, it may fail. We don't know. That's why we're doing the trials. Uh, but if it's successful, uh, then we will have uh, a treatment for people who have deficits after stroke, who have no other hope, uh, who have no other way to get better uh, if, in fact, uh, this is effective. Um, the uh, important thing, though, is that this is still unproven. And if someone has a stroke, they should participate in a clinical trial and contribute to this process. Uh, that's probably the best way, if they're interested in getting cell therapy, uh, to, to go forward uh, um, uh, with a, a deficit related to stroke. Now, there are other neurological diseases that we are looking at uh, stem cell therapy for as well. Uh, you may have heard about the, these studies in multiple sclerosis, in Parkinson's disease, in ALS, uh, even dementia. But they are even earlier in the phases of the studies than we are with stroke. Uh, over the next few years, these things will progress. Uh, and, uh, um, you know, if people have questions about these things, I'm happy to discuss where we are with those kinds of diseases. Um, but again, we need more information to know whether these are going to be effective therapies. So uh, that's where we stand neurologically and with stroke. Uh, and uh, I hope that's a good introduction for everyone. Uh, and I look forward to the discussion. Thanks. And I, I want to get to questions from all of you as soon as possible, but I do want to ask each of our, each of our panelists at least one question on my own before we go. And Dr. Wexler, I'll start with you. Um, so you talked a lot about the, you know, the nature of clinical trials, the science, the, uh, how meticulous it is, how important the science and, and the process is to understanding the results and the reality of a treatment. So when you look at the phenomenon of the for-profit cl uh, clinics that Dr. Rubin talked about, is it a concern for you? Is, it, is this running way ahead of the science and the reality of stem cell research right now? I, I think it is a concern. Uh, I, I think the concern is, again, the, the risk-benefit ratio. Um, the, the cells that we're testing um, that have been um, through the FDA process 
usually they get what's called an, an IND uh, or, or uh, a, an approval from the FDA that these cells can be used in clinical trials uh, because they have looked at the production of the cells, they have looked at the purity of the cells, they have looked at the viability of the cells, uh, and we know uh, that there is a consistent process that produces a product uh, that at least has a chance of working. Um, in st some stem cell clinics, and I, I'm not I don't know whether they're all like this, I don't know every one of them out there, but the concern is, do we have the same quality control of cells uh, and stem cells and, st and cell therapy in these places that we have in these products that we're going to uh, eventually, hopefully, get FDA approved for uh, uh, for clinical use, and I'm not sure we do. And if we don't, if the cells aren't viable, uh, and if the cells, uh, uh, if the, the, they're not produced in the right way, uh, and they're not given in sufficient numbers, and they're not given at the right time, and they're not given at the right place, uh, then uh, there's very little chance that they're going to work. And then we look at that risk-benefit ratio, and we say, well, we don't know that there's any benefit. We know there's risk. It's probably not a, worth, uh, a risk worth taking. Dr. Rubin, so where are the regulators in all of this? I think you said there's a, there's a dozen or so of these clinics here in our region. There's 700 nationwide. Isn't this something the FDA is on top of as these things spring up across the country? The FDA has uh, definitely targeted uh, some of the more high-profile clinics. And the FDA will post, they have posted on their uh, website, the FDA website, you can actually see warning letters that are sent to these clinics. And there have been some very high-profile uh, legal cases involving uh, stem cell clinics uh, as well. The reality is that the FDA doesn't have the resources to come to every one of these clinics. And what the FDA has been, in fact, trying to do, they've been very proactive. Um, Dr. Gottlieb, uh, who is who's in the process of of stepping down as, as FDA commissioner has been very proactive in setting new pathways to actually accelerate the approval of, of cell therapies and some of these regenerative technologies. But the clinics that are involved have to get involved. You know, they, they can't sit back passively. They have to actually, they have, actually have an opportunity to get involved in the process. But yes, these are regulated. Now, a lot of these clinics that you see advertised will actually tell you that they don't fall under FDA regulation. Well, that, that's simply not true. So a little bit, it is a little bit of let the buyer beware then, trying to understand what's going on. Carl, I wonder from your perspective, as somebody who's looked at sort of the, uh, a bit of the history of, of communication around medicine and science about kind of the world we live in today, is it, do you think it's even harder today to make sense of all of this than it was in the 80s or in the 50s? Yeah, it is shocking, but I have to say, um, it's really going to be a pit because we are the place where Mr. Rogers started public television where people trusted enough an experimental doctor who came here with, you know, he went around to school children and said, can I vaccinate your children with an experimental disease? But, you know, there was an element of trust between the media, the government, and the university. Remember, polio was very marketed. In Dr. Starzl's case, there really was a consensus that became, started to form around Pittsburgh, having seen the successes, to give him more and more latitude to do this. And we really have that broken down now. I think it's the obligation. I think this panel is a good start. But I think it's really the obligation of the university, the scientific community, to find a way to 
get some trust back in media, and I think that's a, a huge gap. We keep talking about STEM education in our schools. The truth is, I think the university has to work with media people to really start vetting and say, who's, here's who we believe in, and tell those stories as much as the early slides you mentioned. Because if you're not doing that in that vacuum, the public has no choice but to just guess about what's va valid and what's not. Point. Um, and I do want to open up. Prior to today's event, we did ask for questions from many of you who are going to attend. And I grouped them. They come into two big groups. So I'm going to just ask those two, uh, those two questions first, and then we'll open up. They're really uh, digging into what is the reality around what can be done with stem cell therapies today. One whole group of questions, and there's close to a dozen of them, really focused on arthritis, joint damage, those types of issues. Uh, so I guess, Dr. Rubin, I mean, what is reality? What can and can't be done today? What can people have confidence in? I'm going to start by saying of, of all the areas that we can treat, uh, osteoarthritis, joint injury is definitely rep represents a really good clinical target for cell therapies because a lot of the medical therapies are not very effective, uh, don't relieve pain, uh, steroid injections have their own set of problems, and the next level of intervention is, uh, is surgery. So I think that's a really good target. Now, I'm going to say very definitively that what, if, if that's a concern of yours, that where you need to start is you need to start by seeing a specialist specifically who deals with arthritis with joint pain, and, and there are a few different disciplines that do this, of course, orthopedic surgery, uh, sports medicine uh, being, being one of the, the primary areas of this. And one of the big issues with a lot of stem cell clinics that sort of function out of the medical, regular medical system is that no matter what you come in with, their only tool is a hammer. And you are not going to be evaluated in the proper context of your disorder. So rather than going to see a stem cell specialist who may or may not offer you something and may or may not have evidence behind it, it's very important that you enter the system with a specialist who can properly evaluate your joint disease and make a determination that is this something that is going to need surgery, a more invasive therapy? Is this something that could be treated uh, non-invasively? And if so, those are the right people to look at the current evidence behind stem cell therapies and put that in the perspective of, of what may help you in your specific case. And I can't emphasize that enough. It's not a question of saying, Stem cells work for arthritis or they don't work for arthritis. It's how you are evaluated, how the current data, which changes month to month, is put into context in your specific case. Thanks. The other set of questions was really around neurodegenerative uh, diseases and, and what hope is offered. MS was mentioned. Acromatopsia, colorblindness, I think, came up as one of the questions as well. So what's possible right now? And I think, Dr. Wexler, you also mentioned the importance of getting involved in a clinical trial. Well, how do you find a clinical trial and how do you get involved? Yeah, so it's a good question. Uh, um, I don't know much about achromatopsia, but uh, I know about uh, other neurologic diseases. Uh, and uh, as I mentioned, um, Stem cells are being looked at for a number of neurologic diseases. Uh, I, I mentioned a few of them. 
uh, MS, uh, ALS, Parkinson's, uh, uh, dementia, uh, and, uh, and, and we're in the very early stages of evaluating uh, these treatments. Uh, uh, and at this point, we just don't know how effective or whether uh, they're going to be effective uh, uh, at all. Um, the, uh, um, the, I think if, if you're interested in a clinical trial, uh, I mean, there are ways to find the trials. I think the best way would be to uh, talk to uh, one of the neurologists who has expertise in these areas. Uh, many of these trials are being done here at Pitt uh, by some of our experts in our Department of Neurology who are in these fields. Uh, I mean, there's a, a lot of information on the internet about these trials. Uh, there is a, a, a website called clinicaltrials.gov uh, in which all these trials if, uh, are listed. It's a little hard for uh, some people to kind of navigate that website and, and find what you're looking for, but as a search on it, and you can put in Alzheimer's disease or ALS or whatever, and it'll uh, tell you all the trials uh, in that area. Um, so, uh, so there are ways to find them, uh, either through our experts uh, in our uh, University of Pittsburgh Neurology Department on, uh, searching on the internet uh, and uh, the clinicaltrials.gov website. Well, with our time left, I'd like to open it up if anybody in the audience has questions for our panelists. And uh, I'm going to do the Oprah Winfrey, or for those of you with a few gray hairs, the Phil Donahue approach, and work the audience with the microphone. I'll come back here. Excuse me. Thank you. Uh, I'm Dr. Paul Lieber. I'm here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, as practitioner uh, treating folks with stem cells and other things. I'm a physiatrist. And uh, Dr. Rubin, you talked a lot about adipose-derived stem cells. And uh, clinically, my understanding is that the FDA prohibits me from using them because it doesn't meet the requirement of minimal, manip minimal manipulation. Could you comment on that? Uh, I'm sorry, it was a little difficult to hear. Which type of stem cells? Adipose-derived. Yeah, that, that, is, that is correct. By the uh, most recent uh, FDA guidelines that were uh, guidance document that was finalized in November of 2017, uh, they consider uh, adipose-derived stem cells uh, to be uh, what the FDA considers more than minimally manipulated, uh, which means that if you are going to use them, it has to be under an FDA-sanctioned trial. And that, that is the current, that is the, those are the current guidelines. Okay, another question over here? So come around this way. Thank you. I was uh, wondering what uh, is the research for nerve, uh, permanent nerve damage, regeneration of permanent nerve damage? You're referring to like a, a, a peripheral nerve in the arm or leg, uh, something like that? Is that the nerve? Uh, in the neck, he's, he's referring to, but yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, f there, the, the nervous system has central nervous system and peripheral nervous system. The peripheral nervous system, believe it or not, is pretty good at regenerating itself. It doesn't need a lot of help. Um, if the nerve is completely severed, then you, you have to do a graft in order for it to grow. But otherwise, uh, the peripheral nervous system can repair itself. It's the central nervous system where the repair uh, doesn't really occur. Um, so um, if you're talking about like a pinch nerve in the neck, something like that, um, that's probably not going to be a, 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 a very rich target for something like stem cells because oftentimes those nerves can repair themselves anyway as long as you relieve the pressure and reduce the inflammation. Um, but it's more the central nervous system where we concentrate uh, stem cells uh, 
because that's where I think the, the nervous system needs more help in repairing itself. Okay, I thought I saw another hand over here somewhere. Did I? Yep, right here. Excuse me. Uh, Dr. Wexler, you referred to products. Uh, do you think that the future of stem cells will be things that will come off the shelf, or will they be patient-derived? Good question. So, so their stem cells can be given uh, uh, in two ways, uh, um, and kind of I'm, I'm really talking about uh, mesenchymal stem cells. They can be um, uh, what's called uh, autologous, which means they're taken from the same from you and they are given back to you, so your, your cells, uh, or they're allogeneic, which means they come from some other person, some other source. They are prepared and then given to you as a product. Um, I think the future is in the allogeneic route. Uh, I think the uh, autologous uh, uh, methodology, first of all, for stem cells, it takes uh, you know, some time to process the cells. Uh, and uh, in, uh, as you get older, uh, there are fewer of those cells that can be harvested from even from things like your bone marrow, though there are other sources now that, that where these can be obtained. Uh, but it's a little harder to do than the allogeneic uh, source. I think that, you know, there's another aspect to it, interestingly, is that um, one of the major mechanisms we believe that, that stem cells work by and we haven't really talked much about mechanism, but one of them is uh, by immune uh, modulation. Uh, and the younger cells have better immune modulation than older cells. Uh, we know that the immune system has a senescence uh, effect. Uh, so it may be advantageous to get a product that comes from younger donors than from yourself if you're an older person. May I uh, add to that? Uh, you know, I. I agree with Dr. Wexler, and I, I think that uh, th there are absolutely indications where allogeneic cells are, are going to be very beneficial. I, I still think that there is a, uh, um, a, a many applications for autologous cells, and especially from fat-derived stem, stem cells that, that we work with in our lab, uh, where you can harvest these cells in a very significant quantity and where you can overcome some of the age-related deficiencies through cell dosing and uh, perhaps chem chemical stimulation of, of those cells. So I, I think we're going to see this evolving where there's going to be applications for, for both uh, of these. Certainly with allogeneic cells, it's, it's easier to standardize and, and test larger lots of cells and make them available, but it's also a, a much higher cost, and there are some other disadvantages of allogeneics. I, I think we'll see both of these evolve. Okay, question down here in front. Hi, I'm here because I saw the skin gun on YouTube years ago, a decade ago. Uh, Dr. George Gerlach, I was hoping to see him here today. Uh, but uh, Dr. Gerlach's right over here. Hi. So, uh, yes, I wanted to know, what is the barrier to that? Why isn't it in every burn unit by now? It's been a decade since I saw that video. Well, okay, we've got the man himself. Is that all? Let's <laughs> go over. Dr. Girl. Thank you very much. So um, this is a therapy with the patient's own cells. Um, the regulatory work um, is easier. The laboratory work leading to the clinical use of those cells um, is probably easier. But the work, as was just pointed out, for each patient means they need to be isolated, they need to be worked on in the operation theater. 
a, a process that is a little complicated. Um, we, we, we worked in the framework of university and UPMC, university hospital activities. Um, a company is in the process of a product development and naturally the hospital then says, well, if there's a product development, we cannot continue on the university approach. So there's this phase of, we did it and we have very nice results. Um, we did it on the level of university um, activities and in the transition towards the company or the regulatory work on this procedure um, is complex. Um, the, the, the company now is working on, on all that, but right now we cannot continue or we shouldn't continue on the university level, while the company is not yet ready to go into a larger, involving several centers, into a larger study um, as a company product. Um, that is the transition phase, which probably is a problem in all these areas. Um, you have initially very promising results, but it takes time for companies to, to take over and, and offer products. Well, thank you very much. And it speaks to the, the issue of how long this takes. And is that something we just have to accept? I mean, that's part of the frustration I think the public feels about all of this. You guys are getting great results in the lab. Why isn't this curing my kid tomorrow? And, and what's it going to take to make that expedite this? Yeah, as Dr. Wexler pointed out during his opening remarks, uh, in the United States we have a, uh, a system uh, regulated by the FDA for bringing technologies uh, from the, the bench into the clinic. It's a risk-based uh, system. Uh, it, and uh, certainly there are other places in the world where they can accelerate these technologies faster, uh, but the regulations... Uh, are not as protective uh, as well. So we have, we have to bring these trials, uh, uh, bring the um, uh, uh, products forward uh, with proper trials, with proper evidence, uh, with proper quality control. And then, of course, we need commercial partners, industry partners, to get involved and put the, the business elements behind this that can actually get this out as well. So it is, it is a fairly lengthy process uh, to get these therapies out there. Uh, some of the therapies, of course, have less onerous regulatory requirements and less complexity of manufacturing, and those are the things that you're going to see, some of those you're going to see coming through a little bit faster. I wonder, Carl, as you looked at Starzl and, and Salk, was there the same tension about when is this going to be real, how long this takes? Well, you know, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that Salk had the March of Dimes involved Hollywood, really marketed it to the public. And I think of all the money that you see in healthcare ads and the cynicism between drug companies and healthcare providers, there really needs to be, I think, a revolution in the way this communication goes. Because when the public gets behind it, and, and this has been a fascinating, I mean, I know this guy for a long time, but even now I'm starting to realize, yeah, when can we accelerate this process? And how do we have an honest conversation? And I think I, I wish that the drug companies, the healthcare providers, and everybody could kind of get together and find a way to accelerate the amount of communication because then maybe we could have more progress than we currently have right now. You know, uh, under the uh, 21st Century Cures Act, which was a, a bipartisan legislation, uh, the federal government is really trying to move these therapies forward in a, in a faster way. They have a new designation, the, the RMAT pathway, Regenerative Medicine Advanced Therapies Pathway, and they're actually leaning on the FDA to start considering 
uh, uh, registry data, some of the data that's really been outside of established clinical trials methodology to try and support the evidence behind this. And, and so we are seeing efforts by the government uh, to, to make this happen. But again, this is all, you know, it's risk-based. And as Dr. Wexler pointed out, you've got to look at the risk-benefit ratio. There are people who have been harmed by stem cell therapies delivered in unlicensed facilities uh, in unregulated facilities. So yeah, I just add that that um, you know uh, there are other uh, processes in other countries that are maybe of interest. So in Japan, uh, where regenerative medicine is considered a, a very serious unmet need, uh, they have already created a much more accelerated pathway for these kinds of treatments, where um, they are uh, they are uh, okay tolerating a higher uh, threshold of risk in order to get these therapies out into the public, and then do the trials after they've been put out there, uh, rather than trying to do the trials first before they get approval. Uh, now, you know, we as a society then would have to tolerate the higher risk because sometimes it's going to turn out that these treatments are more toxic than we thought and they're going to harm people. But as long as we're willing to accept that, as they have in Japan, there are ways to perhaps accelerate this process that have been, uh, again, shown in other countries. And, and Japan, Japan is also one of the regions where they are more favorable about the use. Someone asked about adipose-derived stem cells, about autologous adipose-derived stem cells. Their regulations are, are a little bit different, and they're more open to that in that environment. The, the reason why it's not accepted in the U.S. is... is uh, very, very complicated and a long explanation that really dives deep into the weeds of, of how the regulations were formed. Okay, so we started about five minutes late, so I'm going to use the moderator's prerogative of buying us five more minutes so we can keep going with a couple more questions before we run out of time. Uh, my question is for Dr. Wexler, and this is a little bit technical. Uh, from my understanding, if you have a stroke and it has persisted for uh, the effects have persisted for a long period of time. You would have not only neurological damage, but you would have uh, arterial damage and perhaps other uh, damages as well to the, the cells that surround the nerves. And so I'm wondering uh, what kind of stem cells you would use. Would you use a cocktail of cells, something to treat the nerves and different aspects of the nerves, as well as uh, something to regenerate uh, blood flow? So very, very good questions, and I don't know that I, we have all the answers at this point. Uh, that's you know, part of the process here, is finding out exactly the, the answers to the questions that you're, you're talking about. Uh, um, what is the best way to approach this? So when you're months or years out from a stroke, uh, you have an area of irreversible damage in your brain. Um, that's never coming back. And so there are a number of different things, different approaches. One approach would be to replace those cells, to rebuild the brain. But the brain, as you know, is very, very complex, and it has lots of different cell types, and those cells make lots of connections, and they do lots of intricate things. And we don't have the technology today to rebuild the brain. Uh, hopefully we will someday, but we don't uh, right now. Uh, so uh, we think that the best approach is to uh, give these cells that um, uh, act as little uh, factories for producing growth factors and cytokines and interleukins, things that we know can enhance function of the cells that are left behind, that are still there, either in some sort of quiescent state uh, or active, but can be uh, enhanced to 
uh, function better and take over the function of the areas uh, that are irreversibly damaged. Um, so that's where we are today. That's our first step. But there are, uh, but, and maybe that will help, uh, that will create a 10 or 20% benefit. Um, but hopefully we can go beyond that and talk about the things that you're talking about, the arterial uh, damage, damage to other tissues. And maybe by building on that, we can then get to the point where we have a 30% improvement or a 50% improvement or a 100% improvement. Uh, uh, but that takes time. But we have to take that first step, and we're still at that first step. Okay, let's see. I thought I saw a hand over in this area. Yeah. I think it came out of uh, some political blurb I heard along the campaign in 16. But weren't, wasn't there legislation once on the table about if the patient wanted to try it, they should reconsider legislation to let the patient try it? And did that legislation die somewhere along the way? Or is that legislation still around? You mean without FDA approval? Is that what you're referring yeah, to? It was, it was, it, I, you know, if, if the patient wasn't going to live without trying, why not let him try it? You know, why, why, why let him fight it out for three years when he has six months to live? That, that type of... I don't have any... So as of right now, that's not the... the, that. you know, the law does not permit that. Yeah. Maybe okay. Bob Cormos can answer that? Uh, other than in a clinical trial. Okay. Uh, anybody? I saw a hooker hand. I'm curious as to, for these centers that are offering stem cell therapy, exactly what are they selling? And I've also seen that UPMC has Center for Regenerative Therapy listed under stem cells. What is that? So, uh, a lot of the, the therapies that you may see offered uh, by clinics uh, would include either your own cells, bone marrow, or adipose cells, or they could be a product that's produced by a manufacturer and a very popular area right now uh, includes uh, um, umbilical cord-derived cells uh, or amniotic cells. Those are, those are some, of the, uh, some of the treatments. Uh, in terms of, of regenerative therapies, uh, that are going on at, at, at UPMC. Uh, these happen in, in different specialties, and, and these are not necessarily uh, stem cell therapies, uh, but they may be therapies that involve uh, the, the implantation of approved FDA-approved devices that allow tissue ingrowth and regeneration, uh, or in reconstructive procedures, for example, using your own fat tissue uh, to transfer fat tissue uh, for reconstructive purposes and to relieve fibrosis of tissues. Okay. We've got time for one last question. Did you have one? Another Pittsburgh icon would be uh, Andrew Carnegie. And one of his uh, comments that is powerful to me is when he said that uh, the longer I live, the less I pay attention to what people say. I just watch what they do. Well, I, what I mean by that is that Dr. Rubin and I went out to the airport to, we've been to several of these uh, conventions that happened from the advertisement in the Pittsburgh paper. I would like to play a recording here that I heard at several of these things that just nobody can make sense out of it. And yet at the end of the session, at least 20 people stood up for, sign up for therapy. 
Okay, what does that mean? With every trial, the placebo effect is 30% roughly. So if you get sugar water, you've got a 30% chance of, but that has to enter into a statistical evaluation. So what it, simply what I'm trying to say is these clinics, I don't have a problem with them except they don't keep data. And if they kept data, if they communicated with each other, if things were transparent, a common word we hear in healthcare today, uh, it would be good. In my own practice in surgery, I couldn't believe in the, in the 80s when, when I, I came to Pittsburgh in 79, when, when gallbladders were being removed through steel tubes, I said, that's not possible. And yet that was all being done not in universities. They were being done in outside places and it finally caught on and if I have to have my gallbladder taken out, I want it done that way today. And so a lot of this will catch on. And so this, the, the hope I feel certainly uh, really uh, is going to happen and we have to be patient, but things are happening and it's a good time to be alive. I think on that note, we should thank our panelists. <laughs> And thank all of you, especially all the scientists and researchers in the room who are really on the cutting edge of making some great things happen in the future. Thank you so much. Go downstairs. Please join us downstairs for the reception.